The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Well, we've been going through our series uh, through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah entitled The God Who Builds. And throughout the series, we've seen how Nehemiah, the governor, uh, led Jerusalem through some very difficult times in the nation's history. And yet, even in those challenging times, God did some amazing things in their lives. And as we've been saying throughout the series, uh, God often does his greatest building work at the place of our most agonizing brokenness. And we've seen that true time and time again as we have looked through this book. Typically, we take a portion of our service to read our text, but what I'm going to do this morning, uh, since we're covering three chapters, is we're just going to jump right into it with a message entitled, The God Who Builds Through Our Weakness. The God Who Builds Through Our Weakness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a God who doesn't require us to have it all together, Lord, but you love to do great things, even in our brokenness and through our weakness. And Father, I pray that as we look into your word this morning, your spirit would encourage us with that truth, challenge us with that truth. We love you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, last week we saw the nation of Israel respond to God's compassion and his mercy uh, by committing themselves to him. Uh, After all the building work, they began going through a time of spiritual renewal or revival, as a word we'll sometimes use. After they read the law of God, then they had a celebratory time where they had the celebration of booze and really celebrated all of God's goodness. Uh, Then they took time to confess their sin before God, and they reminded themselves of all that God had done for them through their history. And in response to all that he had done, uh, they made several commitments to God. And here in chapter number 11 and chapter number 12, uh, we see the spiritual renewal really come to a climax. Uh, In chapter 11, in the first half of chapter 12, we see the people dwell in Jerusalem. The people dwell in Jerusalem. One in ten families decided decided to move back to Jerusalem to repopulate and to reestablish the city of Jerusalem to its former glory. You see, this would have been a big sacrifice for these people because Jerusalem was at this time, it was really just a shell. Um, There was really nothing going on inside the city. There was no commerce. Uh, There was no real way to make a living. Most of the people's livelihoods would have been in farms outside of the city and in different provinces. Uh, They had rebuilt the wall, uh, but for all practical purposes, the city was just the shell. It was dead on the inside. But if you remember, as we've said, this work wasn't just about rebuilding the physical wall. It was also about rebuilding a people and rebuilding the city. Jerusalem was supposed to be the center of their corporate worship. It was the center of the Davidic dynasty, and it was the center of all the promises that Messiah was to come. And so repopulating and reestablishing the city was really about reestablishing the covenant that they had with God. Uh, chapters, or verses number 1 and 2 of chapter 11 kind of describes how they went about it. It says, And the rulers dwelt at Jerusalem, and the rest of the people also cast lots, to bring one of ten, one of ten families, to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in the other cities. And all the people, list all the men, that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So there were some people who were chosen by lot, to go and reestablish the city. There were many people who volunteered to go and help reestablish the city. But everyone praised them for doing this because they realized this would have been a sacrifice. So they were celebrating the fact that people were willing to go and see this city reestablished. And then chapter 11, all the way through chapter 12, verse 26, it gives us a list of all the people who go to reestablish and dwell in Jerusalem. Then chapter number 12, verse 27 says, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites, out of all their places, to bring, with, uh, to bring them to Jerusalem to keep the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, psalteries, 
and with harps. So after they reestablish the city, after they decide who's going to go, we see the people dedicate the wall. And through the rest of chapter 12, uh, we have this dedication ceremony taking place uh, for the wall that has now been completed. Singers gathered from all different villages and different regions uh, for the ceremony. Uh, if you read chapter 12, you'll see Ezra the priest was among those people. Many people believe that he came out of retirement to come and help lead uh, this dedication ceremony. Verse 31 of chapter 12 kind of describes what took place. Uh, Nehemiah said, Then I brought up the princes of Judah upon the wall, and I appointed two great companies. So they had these two great companies, or these two choirs of all the singers and all the people playing their instruments that gave thanks. Whereof, so one of these groups went to the right hand of the wall. So one of these groups begins to march around on the right side of the wall as they praise and worship God. Verse 38, And the other company of them that gave thanks went over against them, and I after them, and half the people upon the wall from beyond the tower and the furnaces even unto the broad wall. So here we have these two huge choirs of all these people, of all these Israelites, of all these singers, all the people with their instruments. They've come from all around the region to dedicate this wall, and they actually physically get on top of the wall, and they begin marching around opposite sides of it, singing and praising God. Uh, Many people believe they would have sung antiphonally, which means they would sing back and forth. Most believe they would have sung a psalm similar to Psalm 48 which was just worshiping God for all the work that he had done in Jerusalem. So imagine in your mind, you have these two huge choirs marching around either side of the wall, singing back and forth the word of God, while the people in the city listened to the word of God. Most people believe the wall would have been about nine to ten feet wide, so you would have had about two to three people standing across the top. So this would have been two very long uh, choirs, very long groups of people taking place now. Now, this is a great celebration, really the climax of everything that was going on, but I also don't want you to miss the irony of what's happening here either. Uh, earlier in chapter 4, Tobiah, one of the critics of Nehemiah, says, if a little fox jumped on that wall, it would fall apart. He's saying this wall is so weak and it's so insignificant that if a, a, a tiny animal that weighed nothing jumped on it, it would fall apart. And now here, as they're dedicating it, they literally have two huge groups, two huge choirs marching around on top of the wall, celebrating all the work and all the goodness of God. Then in verses 44 through 47, they organized how the ministry of God would continue to go forward. They were excited about all that God was doing, and they wanted to see it continue. They wanted to see the building work go on, so they set in processes and systems in place to continue the work. This is the pinnacle of everything that Nehemiah had hoped for. This is the exciting conclusion of God's building work. Revival had broken out. The city was being revitalized. People were excited. They had a hunger for the Word of God. They dedicated their lives to him. They wanted to serve him. Critic after critic had been proven wrong. All the obstacles had been overcome. If you like perfect fairy tale endings, chapter 12 is the perfect one. But fairy tale endings aren't always real life, are they? I mean, many of us have had times in our life where we were experiencing something similar to chapter 12. We were excited about serving God. We were excited about committing aspects of our lives over to him. We had a hunger for the word. We were excited about gathering together as a church and serving the church and serving our community and serving God. We love to worship him. I think many of us, if we've been in church for any length of time, could look back on our life and say, yeah, there was times where, man, it seemed like I was really on fire uh, for the Lord. But as we're going to see in chapter 12, or in the book of Nehemiah after chapter 12, and as I'm sure many of us could testify to, um, the human soul is prone to drift. Chapter 12 seems like the perfect ending, but it's not the end of the book. There's still chapter 13. And as we're going to see, our souls are prone to drift away from God. So how can we know our soul is drifting? 
Maybe you're in that season where you feel like, man, I'm on fire for God. Nehemiah chapter 12, that's my life. I'm excited about all that he's doing. How can I know if my soul is beginning to drift? Maybe you're here this morning, and if you were to be honest, you would say, Pastor Nick, I feel like my soul is drifting right now. I mean, it's great, and it's exciting, everything that's going on there in chapter 12, but that's not my life. What do I do? Is there any hope? My soul feels so far from God. But as we're going to see throughout chapter 13, God is faithful to us even though we often drift from him. In Nehemiah 13, we see the nation of Israel drifting away from God, even though they had just genuinely turned back to him, like we saw last week. This was real, what they were experiencing. It wasn't fake. It wasn't the emotion of a moment. But their soul drifted away from God, which leads us to our third thought this morning, the people drift from God. I mean, everything had been going so well. The awesome building work had happened. Now Nehemiah, he heads back to King Artaxerxes in Babylon over 800 miles away. And then when he comes back to Jerusalem, so much of the change, so much of the building work had become brittle if it hadn't altogether begun to fall apart. Let's look at 13, verse number 4, to kind of pick it up and see what's taking place. Verse 4, And before this, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of God, was allied unto Tobiah. Now, Tobiah, as we've seen, has never been for the building work. He's been an enemy of God. He's been an enemy of God's people. And how now here we have Elisha, the priest, the person who has oversight of the house of God. He's making an allegiance with Tobiah. It says, And Elisha prepared for him a great chamber where aforetime they laid the meat offerings and the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes and the corn and the new wine and the oil, which is commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests. If you skip down, it, Nehemiah says, And it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers, and thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with meat offerings and with frankincense. Here we have the priest. Here we have Eliashib making a house for Tobiah in the middle of the house of God. He's literally and physically clearing out aspects of worship to God in order to make room for a man who literally works against God. And so the first area we're prone to drift this morning is we're prone to drift in our allegiance. You see, our allegiance reveals our affection. The fact that Eliashib had a lack of affection for God was revealed by who he aligned himself with. He aligned himself, he made an allegiance with Tobiah, who was against God, who was against the building work, and he literally removes aspects of worship so Tobiah could have a nice place to crash. Tobiah had been unsuccessful in hindering the work of God from the outside, so what's he do? He decides to corrupt it from the inside. And here we actually see he's actually having some measure of success. You see, drifting from God always starts on our soul before it ever affects our outward actions. That's why uh, Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence. Why? For out of it are the issues of life. From the heart are the issues of life, and without one's affections rightly aligned, the life we are called to live is impossible. Now, I know most of us, when we think our allegiance, we'll think, yeah, I mean, I'm on God's side, right? I'm here at church. Obviously, I'm God's side, so I'm good, right? But you see, drifting is more subtle than that. Little by little, things take away our affection from God. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we making room for in our life at the expense of worshiping God? They were clearing out aspects of worship to make an allegiance that did not honor God. And what we have to ask ourselves is, what are we making room for in our life at the expense of worshiping God? Deuteronomy 6.5 says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. There's no room for divided affections or allegiance there. That's why Jesus said no man can serve two masters. The fact that God is supremely powerful demands a supreme and total loyalty from you and me. 
a loyalty that starts in our heart with our affections. Total allegiance means there's no area, there's no part of our life that does not show we love him. The way we work, the way we treat our wives, the way we raise our kids, everything should all point to the fact that we are aligned with God, that we, ha- we love him. The love we're called to is totally exclusive. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like an awfully big weight to carry. Total, complete, undeterred allegiance to God in every aspect of my life. But as we saw last week, the only reason this is even possible is because God first loved us. The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. You see, our allegiance, our affection drifts away from God when we drift away from his love. When we drift away from the beauty of the gospel, when we stop reminding ourselves of all that he has done for us, when we drift away from his love, our allegiance will drift towards so many lesser things. But the wonderful thing about God is that he is faithful to us, even though we often drift from him. And it's his faithfulness that draws us back. It's his faithfulness and it's his love that enables us to have this kind of love and allegiance. As parents, I think we all understand this to some degree. We don't want our kids to obey us out of fear. We don't want our kids to obey us because we're always yelling at them. We want them to obey us out of love. Now, don't get me wrong. I think all of us, have had pa- all of us as parents have had moments where we willingly act like a psycho to get our kids to do what we want, right? I mean, you yell and you scream and you go nuts. I think I found a meme about this this week or a picture on Facebook. It says, listen to mom calling so nicely. Doesn't she know by now that we don't respond until she screams like a psycho? I can't prove it, but I swear my three-year-old tells my one-year-old this all the time. I mean, all of us as parents have had that moment, but the truth is all of us as parents want to win our kid's heart. We want them to obey us and follow us out of love because it's that love that will cause them to follow us. And it's the same way with God. Even when our heart's affection gets stolen here and drifts there, God loves us. And it is that faithful, unconditional, totally committed love that draws us to him and allows us to totally align our lives with him. Their allegiance had drifted away from God because their affection had drifted away. Next, in verse number 10 through verse number 14, we see the next drift. Nehemiah says in 13.10, I perceived that the portions of of the Levites had not been given them, for the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his own field. Nehemiah, he goes and he sees that the people aren't giving and they couldn't, because they weren't giving, the Levites couldn't do their job. So they literally had to go out and to work in the fields just so that they could make a living. And the Bible says that Nehemiah, he says, I contended with those rulers. These rulers in this book, I don't think they've ever been up to any good. They're making trouble in the neighborhood. 90s child. Yeah, never mind. Okay. He says, why is the house of God forsaken? You could sense he's getting really frustrated. He's contending with them. He's like, guys, we're not giving, and because we're not giving, the Levites can't do their job, and because they can't do their job, all the ministry is stopped. And so we see the next part that we drift from is we drift from generous giving. I know finances are awkward to talk about, right? But I think it's kind of awkward because they so accurately reflect what's going on in our heart. Nothing reflects our affection like the way we spend our money. I mean, Jesus spoke about finances a lot. He cares very much about what we do with our money. Why? Because finances are the whistleblower of your heart. God cares and Jesus cares because they reveal what we actually love. I mean, you want to make a person mad? Take away their money. You want to make a person happy? Give them lots of money. In our text, the people stopped giving and the ministry came to a grinding halt. The Levites literally up and left. They went to work back in the fields. But I want you to imagine what would have happened had they continued giving. Imagine the ministry and the building work that could have continued to gone forward had the people continued giving. 
Last year, I read a portion of an article during our missions conference, and I, I wanted to read it again. The article was called, What Would Happen If the Church Tithed? How Giving 10% Could Change the World. The article says, the church of today is not great at giving. Now, that's not exactly news, but it is a statistical fact. Tithers make up only 10 to 25% of a normal congregation. Only 5% of the U.S. tithes, with 80% of Americans only giving 2% of their income. Now, Christians are only giving 2.5% per capita, while during the Great Depression, they gave 3.3%. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. Christians, as a whole, across our country, gave more during the Great Depression than we do now. Now, numbers like this, the article goes on to say, can invoke a lot of guilt, which isn't really the point. The larger point is, what would happen if believers across our country were to give, to increase their giving to a minimum of, let's say, 10%. That would be an additional $165 billion for churches to use and to distribute. The global impact would be phenomenal. Here are just a few things the church could do with that kind of money. $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 billion could solve the world's sanitation, water and sanitation issues. $1 billion could fully fund all overseas missions work. And then you'd still have 100 to $110 billion left over for additional ministry expansion. Those are some amazing numbers, right? So the question is, why don't people give? Well, the real problem when it comes to giving is not about money. I mean, we're all familiar with the verse, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But I want you to notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 22. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy... Your whole body will be full of light. He's using a metaphor here. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The term evil eye is a Jewish term, whereas a good eye in Judaism refers to goodwill, benevolence, and being genuinely happy when others prosper. The evil eye is the opposite. The person with the evil eye feels distressed when others prosper, rejoices when other people suffer, loves their money, and would do nothing in the way of charity. So when Jesus spoke about the eye... He's speaking to a largely Jewish audience who knew what he was talking about. They understood this metaphor. They knew that a good eye was a generous person and an evil eye was a stingy, sour Scrooge. You see, the point is, giving is always a heart issue. It's never a finance or a money issue. And at Ambassador, we want to see our city changed for the glory of God. We want to see our world reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a church, we're not content just to gather here once a week. We want to make a difference. We want God to use us to do a great building work and in our lives and in our city. When all the experts say that the next generation is going to walk away from the church, we're trying to reach the next generation with the gospel. I mean, we get excited about that. We get excited about the new teen room and the new kids area. But when push comes to shove, does our giving actually reflect that? As the children of Israel's hearts drifted away from God, their giving stopped and the ministry came to a grinding halt. Just a few chapters before, they were so overwhelmed By all that God had done for them, they were radically generous, but their hearts drifted. They stopped reminding themselves of his goodness. They stopped reminding themselves of all that he had given them. They drifted in their allegiance and their affection. They drifted away from generous giving. But notice the next drift in verse 15 of of chapter 13. In those days saw I and Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses, and also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them that in that day wherein they sold victuals. 
There dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware and sold on the Sabbath day unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Get this. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah. There's those nobles again. And I said unto them, What evil thing is this that you do on the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this evil upon us upon this city? He's literally saying, guys, you're doing the very thing that got us into this mess in the first place. Our fathers ignored the Sabbath. They didn't put that margin and their rest into their lives that God wanted so that they could worship him. They ignored it and it got us into this mess in the first place. And now you guys are doing the very same thing. It says, and it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, Nehemiah says, I commanded the gates should be shut and charged them that should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And some of the servants, and some of my servants sat at the gate. Nehemiah literally puts people in the gate to make sure nobody opens it. So the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of ware lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. Then I testified against them and said, why lodge ye about the wall? If ye do so again, I will lay hands on you. Nehemiah is saying, if you guys don't start paying attention to the Sabbath, I'm going to judo chop you in the face. I don't know if that's the most spirit-filled response, but you could tell he's really frustrated. <laughs> and I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should come and keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. I love this. At the end of every, one, every time he corrects somebody, he throws out this desperate prayer. Remember me, O God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. Every prayer is like, God, please don't let all my work be for nothing. So the next drift we see that is we're prone to drift by doing instead of being. Uh, one of the commitments that we saw last week they made was they committed to the Sabbath. They committed to having margin. They committed to having rest in their lives so they could worship God. But once their hearts began drifting, it wasn't long until they started filling up that margin with lesser things. They started trying to make that extra buck, trying to earn the extra dollar and ignoring God. You see, the Sabbath was woven into the fabric of how God created the universe to be. Because you and I, by our nature, we're going to try to earn things that cannot be earned. As humans, we love to accomplish, we love to do, and that's not intrinsically wrong, but there's a danger because if we're not careful, we'll become enslaved to getting things done. We'll have to get things done now because our identity is wrapped up in it. You see, the point of the Sabbath is to remind us that our identity is not in accomplishing things. Our identity is in Christ. Our identity is not in what we can accomplish or what we can get done. It's not about in the fact that we do do this or that we don't do that. Our identity is found in Jesus. And one of the indicators that our heart is drifting away from God is that we find we have literally no margin in our lives because we just have to be so busy. We have no time to breathe, no time to pause, no time to abide in Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You see, when our hearts drift, we get so focused on getting things done that we ignore, the, we crowd out the one person, Jesus, we crowd out the one activity, abiding with him, that actually produces lasting fruit in our lives. Without Christ, our accomplishments on earth mean nothing. Nothing in the scope of eternity, anyway. And one of the indicators our heart is drifting is that we just don't have that margin for the Lord. We don't have that time where we abide. I mean, think about it. We're called human beings, not human doings. We get so caught up in trying to work, trying to earn, try to accomplish that we crowd out God, we crowd out community with his body, we crowd out the only things that actually matter. And while it's good to take initiative, it's good to accomplish things, it's good to get things done, there shouldn't be this stress when we don't accomplish our exact idea of the future. All of our labors and planning should be done for this reason alone, that Christ be magnified, whether in my success 
or in my failures. The children of Israel, they got so focused on doing that they didn't have time to be. They ignored the Sabbath. So how can you identify when your heart is drifting? Well, take a look at your average week. Do you have time to be? Do you have regular times where you can abide in the presence of Jesus and spend time with him? Where you can remind yourself of his faithfulness to you? And if you don't, remember, he is faithful to us even when we crowd him out. Even when we get so busy and we crowd out Jesus and we don't take that time to be in the presence of our Savior, he's right there waiting, standing at the door knocking. We see the nation of Israel drifted in their affection. They drifted from generous giving. They drifted by doing instead of being. Lastly, we see we're prone to drift by worshiping things less than God. Verses 23 through 31, it kind of goes on. It tells a story how um, they were now marrying people who were from uh, different races and ultimately different religions. Like Pastor said last week, this wasn't about, this wasn't against interracial marriage. If you look at uh, Ruth and Boaz, Ruth was a Moabite. Uh, Boaz was a Jew. And in fact, he was in the line of David. He was in the Messianic line. But the difference was Ruth said, I'm going to worship the, the true and the living God. The reason they weren't supposed to marry in this way is because these people would worship pagan gods and that would pull them away from the Lord. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4, Neither shalt thou take marriage with them. Thy daughter shalt thou not give unto a son, nor his daughter shalt thou take from the son, for they will turn away thy sons from following me, and they will serve other gods. So the point of this was to really keep them worshiping God. And here, again, Nehemiah, he confronts them. Verse number 23, In those days also I saw Jews that had married wives of Ashdod and Ammon and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them. Get this, he goes even further this time. And cursed them. Get this. And I smote certain of them and plucked off their hair. Now he's like, I'm going to grab your hair and really judo chop you. He's just frustrated. I mean, I, I kind of feel bad for Nehemiah because he's trying to help this people follow God, and they're just not doing it. And here he just gets really, really upset. And to be honest with you, I, I was talking to somebody about this. I was like, you could tell Nehemiah was a governor and not a pastor because of the way he's responded. But every pastor has had moments. I'm just kidding. No, we haven't. <laughs> he goes on. He says, you shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons and for yourselves. He, he, he goes on and he uses an illustration. He said, didn't Solomon, king of Israel, do this? And he tells him, this is Solomon, the wisest king that ever lived. The king that people came from all around the world just to meet and see if the rumors were true. The king who was incredibly blessed by God. He did this and he fell because of this. And now Nehemiah's like, guys, you do not know what you're doing. You're hurting yourselves. This is the very thing that got us into this mess in the first place. What you're doing is literally what broke our country in half. And Nehemiah, again, he calls him out on it. You see, last week we saw one of the very first commitments they made in response to God's compassion was to value the family. They had committed that they would not marry those who worshipped false gods. They would not allow this idolatry to take place in their home. But as we've seen, they began to drift. And the truth is, one of the easiest places for spiritual drift to happen is in our homes. As families, we begin to worship things less than God. Pastor Tim Keller said it this way, if you need something in addition to God to make you happy, that is your true king. And the easiest place for this to take place is in our homes because that's where the facade is down. That's where we let our hair down. We let our guard down, so to speak. Now, this doesn't mean God does not want us to be happy. 
In fact, he cares very much about us being happy. That's why he says in Psalm 1611, in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We're supposed to want pleasure. But why does God want us to want pleasure? Because it's an indicator of what our hearts are really worshiping. What we take pleasure in reveals what we worship. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, in our home life, is it evident that we take pleasure and worship in Jesus? In the way we interact with dads, with our kids, and with our wives, and in our families, does it reveal the fact that Jesus is our true king? Do we authentically enjoy and worship him? Does life at home reflect the fact that we worship him as our king? If not, maybe there's some, there's some of that drift that could possibly be taking place. You see, we're prone to drift into worshiping things less than God. But again, God is faithful to us, even though we often drift from him. God was faithful to the nation of Israel. God did not allow the building work to entirely cease. Sure, there was results of them turning away from God. That's why they were in this mess in the first place. But throughout the course of history, God was faithful. Why? God was faithful because it was through his faithfulness to the nation of Israel that the Messiah was brought into the world. You see, God kept his covenant even though Israel constantly dropped the ball because you and I needed a Savior. And God will be faithful to you and to me. God will build through our weakness, build even though we often drift away from him. He will build through us. Why? Because we have a Savior and his name is Jesus. Ultimately, it's not our strength that allows God to do a building work. It's not how well put together we are that makes God want to do something. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's how messy our lives are. It's the things in our life that we want to hide, that we don't want anybody to know about. Those are the things that God says, I can do something with this. That's why Paul said, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my grace is made perfect in what, church? Weakness. My grace is made perfect in weakness. Notice what he goes on to say, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory. Paul's like, I get excited about the brokenness. I get excited about my infirmities. Why? Because then the power of Christ can rest upon me. I'll take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecution and distress for Christ's sake. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul recognized that it was his weakness that God would use to do a building work. And the reason we take time to identify how our hearts are prone to drift, it's not so we can leave here and feel guilty. It's not even so we can leave here and go try harder. We identify these things so we know how to spot the drift so we can turn our eyes to the Savior. And so we can see, hey, there's a part of my life where I'm not satisfied with him. There's a part of my life where I'm not gazing on him. So we can turn our eyes to the Savior who never drifts, who is always faithful. Kevin DeYoung said, your main difficulty in mine is not all these different areas that we drift from, but he said it's that we do not gaze enough upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we identify these areas where we drift because it reminds us we need to gaze upon his glory. This week, when the enemy reminds you of your weakness, remind yourself of the strength of your Savior. When the weight of the law comes crushing down on you, remind yourself you have an advocate who has declared you righteous. When you want to toss in the towel and quit, remind yourself that you have a champion who has defeated death and won victory for you. Ultimately, God's building work is not about us. It's all about Jesus. He builds through our weakness. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.